Hey ladies, welcome to the Woman Podcast. My name's Katie Beza and I'm your host. And this episode is a continuation of a teaching series that we have started this year in 2021. So our good friends Rebecca Shatswell and Heather Hoyt will be leading us through the Gospel of Luke. And this teaching is recorded live at New Life Church in Conway. If you're local and you'd like to join in person, we would love to have you. We meet Thursdays at noon. And we hope this resource helps you as you read along in the book of Luke. And we hope that it encourages you that you can read the Word of God and you can get something out of it. So tune in and we hope you enjoy. Hello, how is everyone on this rainy-ish? I guess it's not rainy now. It was rainy earlier. Rainy-ish day. Yeah, drizzly day. Maybe it's a sign of the Lord. Um, Okay, so I am so excited. And we're going to see how much we can pack into this little hour. Because we have two chapters, not chapters. We have chapters, yeah, two chapters left. But we got to make it all the way through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and amazing encounters with Jesus post-resurrection because we can't leave without Jesus rising from the dead, right? So we're going to get through these notes as quickly as we can. But this has been my prayer this morning as I've been preparing yesterday. I've been praying for you guys. The stories we are going to read today are very familiar. If you've been walking with Jesus for a very short period of time, you're going to have heard the things that we are covering today that you've possibly read and studied your whole life. So I have been asking God, the thing I love about the Lord is he kind of reminds me of like a precious jewel, you know, like a diamond that has so many facets that every time we take a look at him, he has a way of showing us a side of himself we did not see before. And I love that no matter how many times we take a look at the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, God is gonna have a way to show us a side of himself, a side of his son that we have never seen before. So that is my prayer today is that God gives us new eyes to see this story. Um, So y'all wanna jump into this? Okay, um, if you read the chapters, we're in Luke chapter 23 and 24 for today. But I really encourage you, if you haven't really deeply read those chapters, I want to encourage you to read them with the synonymous gospels. So if you're taking notes, it's John chapters 18 through 21 is telling the same story. Mark chapters 15 through 16 and Matthew chapters 27 through 28. Yep, Uh, John chapters 18 through 21, Mark chapters 15 through 16. Mark gets through his whole gospel in 16 chapters. Uh, And Matthew chapters 27 through 28. And the reason why I encourage this, I'm actually gonna bring in a couple of John's moments in this story, one from Mark, is if you have ever been around a group of people that something incredible has happened. It could be incredibly good or incredibly bad. You know, the more you hear people share their version, their perspective of the story, you're going to get a fuller picture because people are going to bring out different things that they saw different from one to another. This is exactly what happens in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Each of the writers focuses on details that the other one does not. So to have a really full picture of everything that happened in Jesus's death and resurrection, I just encourage you looking at more than one gospel. Okay, so um, I just want to say this encouragement to you guys. I was talking with Katie yesterday, and I just want to thank you guys for enduring and making it all the way to the end. We have gone 16 weeks through the book of Luke. We were a little ambitious maybe in our very first choice. We could have picked Philippians. It was four chapters. But we really felt like God wanted us to walk through the life of Jesus because he is the foundation. I mean, we can study Paul's teaching. We can study awesome things that are symbolic in the Old Testament, but everything is always gonna lead us back to Jesus. So we thought, what better foundation than to walk through a gospel together, to remind ourselves of his birth, of his life, of his miracles, of his death, the whole thing, so that God can re-root in us the foundation of his son. And so... 
I was talking to her about, I was reminded of the parable of four soils. Jesus talks about how God will send out his word to people. And there's four types of people that receive the word of God. And only one type of soil actually will reproduce fruit from what got planted in them. So I'm saying to you guys, y'all are that type of soil. Y'all are the one in four that aren't just hearing a message and thinking, thank you for my good encouraging word for the day. I needed that. But you guys are the ones who have endured that God is giving you the ability. He is placing it in your hand, the ability to reproduce what he's been putting on the inside of you. So I want to encourage you guys. We're going to study. Hopefully we are going to make it to Mary at the very end but she is the first one that gets commissioned by Jesus to go forth and share the news of his resurrection. She's not a Bible teacher. And if anyone knows Mary Magdalene's story, she could have been unqualified to be used by God for so many issues in her past. She was not a Bible teacher and she had a lot of things that God set her free from. And yet she was qualified by Jesus to be the first one to go forth with his gospel. So I don't want you to disqualify yourself. Your gifting does not have to be Bible teaching for you to be empowered to share the message of Jesus with those that are around you and to be anointed for it to change lives. So, okay, let's jump in. (laughs) Yes, I'm just excited to see what God does with this. Okay, so there's a lot of ways we could look through what we are about to read, but the thread of thought that I really want us to hold on to as we enter these last pages is the thread of God's love. As we will read Jesus in his trial, in his execution and resurrection, over and over again, we will see how far God's love is willing to go, how low his love is willing to stoop, how God's love flows through Jesus' veins all the way to his very last breaths. He never fails to value the one that is in front of him more than himself even when that one is his enemy. And we'll see it through, through what happens in his trial. Jesus is still valuing the person in front of him above himself. It's so powerful to look at. He is always looking to make the person with him better at his own expense, even when he has to take on a cost to do so. So I want you to know when you're the one in front of Jesus, when you're the one at his feet, When you're the one in his presence, he's doing the same thing with you. He is trying to figure out how to add value to your life. He's trying to figure out how to open your eyes to the majesty and wonder that he is, how to set you free, how to deliver you, how to encourage and fan into flame the gift that God has put on your life. So we're gonna read about the darkest moment of humanity, the murder of the Messiah, But I love watching how Jesus responds, even in his hardest moments, because he doesn't do so many of the things that we would naturally do, right? He never defends himself. He does not retaliate. He doesn't punish. He doesn't threaten. He doesn't accuse. But what does he do? Heather talked about this last week. He healed one of his captors. You know, at the moment of arrest, Peter was so excited. Swords got to finally be involved, right? Jesus is like, there needs to be a couple of swords. And Peter's like, oh, I'm so in for this. What moment I've been waiting for. Grabs a sword, chops a dude's ear off, right? And we, I I agree with Heather. I think it was, they had a lot of wine at their Passover celebration. So Peter's aim was a little off. He was not going for the guy's ear, but that's what happened. And Jesus, what is Jesus's response? He knows they're there to arrest him. Is he fearful? Is he freaking out? No, what does he do? It's not a trick. He picks the ear up out of the dirt and puts it back on the guy that came to arrest him. I really want to know what that guy did after that. I'd be like, I'm out, y'all. He just put my ear back on. Y'all can do whatever you want. I am out. I am not helping you arrest him. But Jesus looks at his guys and he says, no more of this. Like he shuts down them trying to take control in the strength of their flesh. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, "Mm, let's read it actually so I get it right. Luke, this is the very end of Luke 22. He says...
verse 51, but Jesus responded and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting a revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But notice what he says, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus handed them the authority to do everything they were about to do. He gave them permission. That is the only reason all of Jesus's enemies were able to triumph over his life. He literally had to put the authority into their hands because they had no power over him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't fall into the hands of sinners. He gave himself into the hands of sinners at the obedience of his father. It wasn't like they captured him. He knew the moment was coming and he said, I'm giving you the power to do all that is in your heart to do right now. So I actually wrote down today something about thinking that Jesus suspended his authority to get through the crucifixion. And then I realized he didn't. He actually used it. He authorized everything that happened. Okay, let's go to chapter 23. Okay. Verse one, then the entire assembly of them set out and brought him before Pilate and they began to bring charges against him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So after the religious leaders have their moment to discuss with Jesus, they're trying to trap him into saying something that he never intended saying. The next step was to bring him before Pilate. And that is where chapter 23 opens when he goes before Pilate the first time. For those who don't know who Pilate is, in some gospels, they call him Pontius Pilate. He is a Roman knight that was entrusted with governing Judea. Okay, so he's a Roman. He is not standing before a Jewish leader at this point. This is a Roman officer. And Pontius Pilate was actually, he was more of a military officer. He's there to kind of keep the peace and really enforce Roman rule. And they have him preside over things that kind of require capital punishment because in Jewish law, they were not allowed to bring capital punishment, especially at a time like this, a time like Passover, only Roman rulers could do it at that time. So that's why they're before Pilate. They want capital punishment for Jesus. They know they will be breaking the law if they push for this within themselves. So they're trying to figure out what can they say to Pilate to convince Pilate to put Jesus Jesus to death. Okay? What are the charges they bring up in this verse? Three charges. Verse two. We found this man, number one, subverting the nation, misleading our nation. Number two, forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. Is that true? Like the very opposite is true. Do y'all remember the story where they're trying to catch him? Like they're thinking maybe we can catch him and not agreeing to pay taxes because that would be something punishable according to Roman authority. And what does Jesus say? They bring him the coin. Do you tell us we should pay the tax or not? And what you may not know is there was a big debate in Jewish culture about whether they should pay the taxes to Caesar because Caesar's inscription was on it. And the way they referred to Caesar was almost in the place of God. They when they talked about him being the emperor, he really was given godlike status in the Roman culture. Well, this offended the Jews because there is no God but Jehovah, right? So they didn't even want to touch the money with his inscription on it because they thought it was like defiled, almost like money to an idol because here's this man claiming to be God on this coin. So they thought they could trap Jesus by saying, should we pay this tax or not? Thinking surely Jesus is going to side with us, but if he sides with us, then he's going against Roman rule. And Jesus is always smarter than the people that think they're smarter than him, right? So every time you think you're smart, Jesus is like, I gotcha, right? So what does he say to them? Yes, render unto Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they're like, Okay, regroup, regroup, regroup. Surely we can come up with something better, right? So this this charge is totally unfounded. And the third one is they charge him with saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And the reason this is a big deal is in the Roman rule, no one was allowed to claim kingship. 
except for the Caesar, except the emperor, the one who was fully in charge. So that's why they are saying that. Are the charges true? Is Jesus walking around claiming kingship? No, most often when he is asked his identity, most often Jesus would say things like, who do you say that I am? And then they would say, are you the Messiah? And he would say, as it is as you say, but he would never himself claim this identity. He was waiting to see who the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of to who he truly was. He was not trying to declare his identity. He was waiting to see who the Holy Spirit helped discover his true identity. Does that make sense? He could have said, I'm the king, like get on the floor and bow. But he was waiting to see whose hearts are ready, who, are, who is soft, who has faith, who is looking for a savior, who has their eyes on the heart of God and not their own plans and their own schemes. Okay, so verse three. Now, Pilate asked him saying, so you are the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, it is as you say. But Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charges in the case of this man. But they kept on insisting, saying he is stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee as far as this place. Okay, what is Pilate's very first response to Jesus? He finds, he finds no grounds for charges in the case of this man. So Pilate has a short discussion with Jesus and comes back out and says, I don't find any reason to do the thing that you are asking me to do to this man. Why is it important to know that this is Pilate's perception of him? Over and over, Jesus is called the sinless one, the spotless lamb of God, the one with whom there is no sin. And it's interesting to me that in his trial, the very leaders he's standing before continue to confirm what scripture had predicted about him. There is nothing we can find against this man. He has committed no crime. He has done no wrong. It is important for the rest of the world to know when they look back and read the account of Jesus that he was not a normal human. The reason why this is important is in this culture, there were many Jews that had been executed on crosses, paying penalties for crimes that they had committed. In the Roman authority, they were very cruel. So when they wanted to make an example of somebody because of their crime, they would often execute them. But Jesus stood out above the rest in a different way. He was not guilty of the crimes he was charged of. In fact, he was guilty of no crime. And the, the very leaders he stood before that were responsible for trying to prove his guilt over and over again, say, I find no reason for guilt in this man. This is important because when we share the gospel, we are trying to tell people, Jesus is not an ordinary human. He's the son of God. He was fully man, but he was fully God. He's the only human that has ever walked this earth and committed no sin. That's why his sacrifice on our behalf, God will actually look at it and count it in our place because he did what we are unable to do. He fully obeyed the father in everything. So God God allows his life to stand in our place and pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. If Jesus had committed a sin, he would never have been a sufficient sacrifice for us. We would all still be under the weight and the penalty of our sin. So demonstrating that Jesus is sinless is so important in his trial. Does that make sense? Because it's not like any other person's trial. Okay, keep going. But they kept on insisting, saying he's stirring up the people. Okay, I want you to look at the Pharisees that continue to insist that Jesus is killed, not just as Jesus's enemies, although they were, but I want you to think about why are they doing the things that are, they are doing? I remember watching The Passion of the Christ years ago. I don't even know how long ago that came out. Do y'all remember? A long time ago. I think I was in college when I watched it. I watched it in the theater twice. I don't tend, I can get a little teary-eyed in movies, but I don't tend to get super emotional. But this was a different experience for me. I found myself sobbing in the theater and being glad we went to a showing that there was like only three other people at. Then some other friends asked me to go. I did not want to watch it again, but I just felt like I needed to. So I go and I'm like psyching myself up again to watch everything that happened in Jesus's life. And then again, I find myself uncontrollably sobbing when it gets to like his torture 
And I'm like, it's kind of like watching the Titanic. It's like, you know what's happening. Can't you prepare yourself? And at one point, I remember I was with Brandon and at one point I threw myself in his lap, which is not like me, dramatic. And I vocally sob out loud and people start looking at me because I could not handle watching what was happening on the screen. I don't know if that's ever happened to y'all. It's like I recommend watching The Passion of the Christ, but also just prepare yourself. And because for me, Jesus has always only been the best thing that's ever happened to my life. Like he's always been good. He's always provided. He has always listened to my prayers. Even in his discipline, he has been nothing but good. And I would watch the screen and I would, be, I would just be imagining how can these people do this to this man that all he did for anyone was amazing things. Like how could this happen? So I always identify with the weeping women that are following behind. And I'm always like, that's who I would be. I'd be like Mary weeping behind him, you know. So, and many of you guys are probably there too because you've received of his goodness and you cannot fathom, you cannot understand conspiring to murder someone like him. But I wanna encourage you to think about why did these guys get to this place? What started them on their course? Not just their full-blown sin, but the seeds from which these crimes came. In James, it says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in all of us, there are the roots of sin, the seeds of sin, which starts with evil desires, desires in us that don't follow the plan of God for our lives. And I want you to see the Pharisees a little bit differently as we read, not just out for Jesus's blood, but possibly the Pharisee that can sometimes hide in our own hearts. In verse five, it says, they kept on insisting, saying he's stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee as far as this place. Now, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he's thinking he can get out of it, he sends him to Herod since he also was in Jerusalem at this time. Verse eight, now Herod was overjoyed when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see a sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he offered him no answer at all. I find it so interesting that Jesus has a full conversation with Pilate and he will even continue a conversation with Pilate after this moment. But when he stands before Herod, he does not answer him at all. I wanna talk about why that happened in just a minute, but does anyone know why would he stand there when Herod questions him and not offer an answer at all? Why would he be silent? Yes, and Herod's not the same Herod in Jesus's early days, but he's the son of that Herod, the one who had all the babies murdered because he felt like Jesus was a threat to his rulership, but he's his son. And the sons were also very brutal, just like their father. So yes, he's the same one with John the Baptist. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse seven says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth to complain or defend himself. This is the amplified version. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before her shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And in 1 Peter 2.23, Peter explains it this way. He says, while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There was a time in my life, this was many years ago, but there were people that I really loved that said some really harmful things about me that were not true. And I'm a strong personality and I have a strong sense of justice and I wanted so badly to set the record straight. I don't know if you've ever felt like there was a time in your life where you felt totally misunderstood or accused of something that wasn't true and you wanted as much as you could to pick up the phone and say, why did you say those things? What is going on? This is not true. And I had all of that on the inside of me. And I remember God asked me to be silent, to not say a word, but to choose to forgive and to commit to regularly pray for these people instead. 
And he said this to me, I will never forget it. He said, Rebecca, you can defend yourself or I can defend you, but you can't have both. And God gave me a choice that day when I felt so unjustly treated, was I gonna choose to stand in my own defense or was I gonna entrust myself to the one who judges righteously? Was I going to allow him to stand at my defense in whatever way he thought needed to happen? Not my way, but in his way. And this is what Jesus did. He didn't choose to defend himself. He entrusted himself to his father and allowed his father's defense to be the only defense that he needed. Here's a question I have for you. Is there a place in life that you want to defend yourself and God might be asking you to stay quiet and intercede instead? Now the chief priests and the scribes stood there, verse 10, vehemently charging him and Herod together with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, dressing him in a brightly shining robe and sent him back to Pilate. I just want you to get this picture in your mind. Here's Jesus, the creator of the world, worthy of more honor than you and I have words or time to give him. And they start making a mockery of his royalty because they do not realize he really is the king of the Jews and he's more than that, he's the creator of the world. So they start to do things to him that make a mockery of being a king. They give him a fake robe, they give him a fake crown of thorns, which is torturous, they beat it into his scalp to basically say, here's your version of a king. Um, So let's move on. Jesus... Okay, so Jesus has the convo with Pilate. He doesn't say anything before Herod. Herod's soldiers continue the mockery, the insults, and the abuse, and then they send him back to Pilate. And in John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38, I wanna give you John's version of his discussion with Pilate. It says, therefore Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, you are the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own or did others tell you about me? Why is Jesus asking that question? Are you saying this on your own or did others tell you about me? He's trying to see, do you have a measure of faith? Are you saying you possibly believe me to be who I really am? Every time Jesus has a one-on-one convo with somebody, he is giving them an offer of salvation. Every time. So I think the reason he didn't have a discussion with Herod, but he had one with Pilate, is Herod had zero faith. But Pilate had a tiny inkling of faith. So we wanted to have a discussion, even though Pilate was eventually going to sentence him to death. So it says, Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, so I would be handed, not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose, I've been born. And for this, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? That is such a powerful question because if our culture is asking any question loudly today in every single arena, it is that question right there. What is truth? What is truth? What's your truth? What's my truth? What's your truth about gender identity? What is your truth about the political world? What is your truth about the financial scene that is going on around us? What is your truth about vaccines and the virus that we're all walking through? Can you hear this question over and over in the culture that we are in? What is truth? What is so grieving to me about this story with Pilate is he almost got it right. He said, what is truth? If he would have only said, who is truth? Because truth is not a thought, it's not an idea, it is not an opinion. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
the truth is standing in front of Pilate, trying to help Pilate understand. And Pilate still thinks truth is an idea and doesn't realize it's a person staring him in the face. So I just want to encourage you, in whatever way you are encountering this question, what is truth? Whether you're talking through things with a friend right now or a family member wrestling, is this true? Is this idea true? Always bring the conversation back to Jesus. He is the truth. Everything that is not him is not true. He is our standard. We are all gonna stand before one person in eternity and give an account. It is not a political leader. It is not that your favorite podcast person, the best sermon, pastor, preacher you listen to right now, your favorite author. We will not stand before any of those people to give an account for what we did in this lifetime. We stand before one, truth himself, Jesus. And in that day, we will re- realize he is more than we ever knew, more than we imagined. Everything we did in pursuit of him will be worth it in that day. So I just wanna encourage you in whatever conversations you're having, continue to draw people back to the person of Jesus. If it's about a sideline topic, get them to Jesus. Because ultimately, if it's a sin issue, he will deal with it once the Holy Spirit's living on the inside of them. But without the Holy Spirit on the inside of them, a discussion about a sin issue is not gonna matter. So I just wanna encourage you, get them to Jesus. Verse 13. Now Pilate summoned to himself the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought this man to me on the ground that he is inciting the people to revolt. And behold, after examining him before you, again, I have found no basis at all in the case of this man for the charges which you are bringing against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for a revolt that took place in the city and for murder. But Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on crying out saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, What has this man done wrong? I have found in his case no grounds for a sentence of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, demanding he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And so Pilate decided to have their demand carried out, and he released the man for whom they were asking, who had been thrown into prison for a revolt and murder, and he handed Jesus over to their will. So here Pilate says three times, I find no grounds for charging this man. And yet he still gives in to their will. Why? Because remember Jesus said at the beginning, the hour of darkness had been handed to these people. So when they continued to cry, he eventually gave in to their will. Pilate, he had been brutal, but he was also a man who had a huge fear of man. He had a fear of his own ruler. He had a fear of people going back to Tiberias and saying he had not been loyal to him and him enduring the punishment of that. He had a fear of the Jews. He had a fear of the crowds. And as a result, his fear of man gave way to his fear of God. Pilate knew there was something to Jesus. In fact, his own wife came and said, I've had dreams about this man. Do not touch this man. He is innocent. He had this fear of God about Jesus. He kept questioning, kept having a conversation. He did not want to sentence him to death. And yet he gave in because of the fear of man. So I just want to say to you guys, the fear of man in our life is always deceptive and it will always try to steal what God is trying to accomplish in our life. So I just want to ask you guys the question, is there any area where you feel like the predominant voice in your head is a fear of people. Yes, Pilate had a fear of man and a fear of man is always deceptive. The enemy will use a fear of man to steal the plan of God on our lives. So if there is any area where you can tell the thing that you are listening to is a fear of people, a fear of their thoughts, what will they think? Will I be able to do this? If you are listening to those voices, it's probably in an area that God is really wanting to bring breakthrough in and wanting to anoint you in. 
Okay. So why did they arrest him and call for his death? Mark 15 verse 10 says that Pilate knew the religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him because they were jealous. There's the root of it. They were jealous. That's the seed that started all of this. They were jealous of Jesus. Why were the religious leaders jealous? Huh? They had a loss of power. Yes. Jesus went everywhere doing the works of God. He had the attention of the people, the heart of the people. He was the living word of God in action. They knew the word of God, but they were not reflecting it in their lives. And the people began to follow Jesus. And they hated that they were losing the loyalty of the people. And in their jealousy, they wanted to end his life. In James 3.16, it says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And yet, even the disciples at the Last Supper, even found in their final moments with Jesus, doing the same thing, comparing themselves with one another and arguing over who's going to be the greatest, right? So they have the seeds of jealousy in them too. They're not so different from the Pharisees. What is the difference? They've placed their faith in Jesus and Jesus is going to move in and do in them what they have the inability to do for themselves. He is going to exchange their sinless nature for his nature of righteousness. They are a work in progress, but because they are following Jesus, Jesus is going to take care of that issue. So I just have a question for us. Is there any area of comparison or jealousy? see in our life today. We live in a culture where it's all around. Okay, let's finish. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I want you to think about that. While he is hanging there on the cross in the midst of torture, what is it that he says? He intercedes for the very people that put him there. Can you imagine being in the middle of the greatest abuse you've ever endured in your life and in that moment praying for their forgiveness? I love that Jesus did not allow bitterness to reside in his spirit for even seconds. In that moment, he interceded for them. He says they don't know what they are doing. Isn't it interesting that even in their sin that was so unjustified, Jesus still has some compassion for them? In the worst of the worst, he still has compassion and says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Do you think his father answered that prayer? I think so. Um, and they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. And the people stood by watching. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God. Do you hear the mockery in it? If he's a savior, why didn't he save himself? His, um, the so soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription written above his head, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals even hanging beside him was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What is the number one mockery Jesus heard over and over again, even in his final hours, his final breaths? What was it? If you are who you say you are, save yourself. Do y'all remember another time Jesus confronted something that sounded just like that? When was it? Let's go all the way back. 16 weeks ago, we said, no, I'm just kidding. It was probably 12. Do y'all remember at the beginning? In the wilderness. Do you remember? When Satan came to him, what did he say to him over and over again? If you are the son of God, let's see what you can do. So this one insult, this one mockery, this one line that keeps being thrown at Jesus over and over again, whether it's from Roman soldiers or religious leaders or the criminal hanging next to him on the cross, where is this coming from? Where's this thought coming from? It's the thought of the enemy over Jesus, seeing if even in his last moments, will he abort mission and save himself? Is he choosing not to save himself because he doesn't have the power to do it? No, why is he not saving himself? Why is he enduring more pain than you and I can imagine? He's there to save us. 
I just, it just blows my mind what Jesus did, how he endured. So when the enemy questions who you are and challenges what God tells you to do, what is our response gonna be? Is there a place right now in your life where you feel like the enemy questions you about who you are and is challenging what you feel like God told you to do? It's so interesting to me when we study the life of Jesus to realize the enemy attacks us the very same way he attacked the Son of God. Always questioning, are you really God's daughter? Are you really redeemed? Does God really wanna do powerful things through your life? Who are you to get up there and lead a Bible study? Who are you to talk to your friend about Jesus? I just am saying these things because I want us to help distinguish the thoughts that are in our head to know which ones are coming from the enemy and which ones are coming from God. Okay, verse 40, but the other people responded and rebuking him said, do you, or the other uh, offender, the other criminal responded and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. Who's the first person to come to his defense at his entire trial and execution? It's a criminal hanging next to him on a cross. And Jesus, he looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus even saves a soul in his final breaths. In that moment, this guy expresses his faith and Jesus confirms that he is about to see salvation in his own life. There is no one that is too far for God to reach. And there's no one whose time is up. If they have breath left in their lungs, Jesus wants a shot at their soul. I mean, he intervenes in this guy's life and the guy's literally in the process of dying. It's so powerful. Okay, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the entire land until the ninth hour because the sun stopped shining and the veil of the temple was torn in two. It was the sixth hour and darkness came over the entire land until the ninth hour. Three hours of total darkness at the moment of Jesus's death. I'm amazed that the entire crowd there did not say, he was who he said he was. I mean, can't, haven't we seen every sign we need to see? He healed, he saved, he intervened over and over again. He saved a criminal hanging right next to him. He prayed for the people torturing him from the cross. He prayed and begged his father to forgive them. And then darkness falls on them for three hours. It is amazing to me all this happens and they still, their eyes are still blinded that he is who he said he was, that he's the son of God. And then the veil tears in two. And I don't know if you guys understand because we don't really have tapestries like they had. But this veil, this tapestry that hung that protected the priests from being able to see the direct glory of God. Because if they would see it, a lot of times it would cost their life. This was like a, I can't remember, like six inches thick, thick tapestry being torn from top to bottom. I can't even imagine what that sound was like. Okay. Um, verse 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And after having said this, he died. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying this man was in fact innocent. So one of the centurions understood. One of the centurions saw everything that happened and he came to faith at that very last moment of Jesus's life. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle after watching what had happened began to return home beating their chests. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. By the way, he was one of the religious leaders, but he was a good and righteous man. Man, can you believe it? In all of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these leaders who had it out for Jesus, he was one man that did not agree with what they were doing. That is encouraging to me to know that Jesus always has a few good men. 
It doesn't matter how bad the situation is, how many people are in disobedience, God always has a remnant. He always will reach a few. Even if there's an entire family that doesn't follow him, he finds a way into the heart of a few, into the heart of a remnant. And that's who this man Joseph is. He had not consented to their plan of action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever laid. It was preparation day, which is Friday, the day before Sabbath. Sabbath was about to begin, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb, how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Okay. Chapter 24, it says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Okay, can we just stop and have a praise break? This is the first sign that a human perceives Jesus is not in that tomb anymore. Okay, this is the hope of our salvation. This is the exclamation mark on the end of God's plan that he's been weaving all throughout history that no one fully understood. Even Jesus' disciples weren't fully getting it. Even though he tried to tell, tell them multiple times, it was still veiled. They were not able to fully understand that Jesus' plan was to die. The Bible says he was made to be sin on our behalf. Like God put the sin of the world on Jesus, on his own son, on the cross so that he could put death to death so that you and I could live not under the curse that we deserved any longer but through Jesus we could have eternal life and we could have the new nature we were always designed for so the empty tomb is the first expression of this moment so verse 2 they found the stone rolled away from the tomb but when they entered, this is talking about the women who prepared the spices, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that they did not find his body, right? This, this would not be the story if they did. While they were perplexed about this, you know, you just imagine, because they didn't realize what was happening. So they're like, what has gone on? Did they take him somewhere else? Did they put him in a different tomb? Like, we're here to pour spices over him, which was a typical ritual to make sure that those who were being buried were treated with honor and care. And really, in decomposition of dead bodies, it kind of helped that process delay a little bit and made it, I guess, as nice as that whole situation could be. So that's why they were there. So they're trying to find Jesus. But when they entered, they did not find his body. They were perplexed about this. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in gleaming clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? I mean, what a statement. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful man, men and be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead? John's version says it this way. It's just talking about Mary, not the multiple Marys. And it says, and the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And yet she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Isn't it amazing? Jesus always asks questions that he's really the answer to right? It's, he's asking her, but like the answer's standing in front, but she's not getting it yet. And thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him. I love Mary because she's all emotions. She can't see straight. Have you ever cried so hard? Like nothing's clear. Like, I don't know if her contacts are messed up or whatever, but she cannot tell it is Jesus. She's having a full conversation. She's so distraught. She's so emotional. And she's like, just tell me, like, don't keep this from me. Like, he was the most important person to me. Tell me where he is. Like, she's so overcome by emotion. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, Mary. 
And she turned and for the first time realized who it was. It was like she heard his voice personally. Like that sound that you know that you know when God speaks your name to you and you feel it in the depth of who you are. That was how Mary heard Jesus all of a sudden. She didn't just hear him with her ears. She heard him in her spirit. And she says to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. That's like her language from birth. So it's like she's switching back into the language that is the most intimate language to her to say like, it's you. Like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. I love it. Because she's not only emotional. What is she? Touchy, right? She's such a woman. She's like, I cannot leave. This just happened. I cannot get over it. I'm not a person that can brush my emotions to the side and move on. And can I say, I think one spiritual gift God has given women, that is called staying power, right? We have the ability to stay long after a lot of other people want to leave and go home. Whether you can say we are emotionally attached to something or not, Mary has staying power. She's the one that's like, as soon as the Sabbath is over and it is lawful, I'm getting to the tomb because that is the last place that I saw my Savior. And I love because of her staying power, even in her grief, she wants to do whatever she can to stay as close to the presence of Jesus. The only place the last place she knew to find him, that was the place that she was going. In her pain, she still ran to Jesus. And because of this, she's the first person commissioned to go forth with the gospel. So I want to encourage you, even in your pain, do whatever it takes to stay at the feet of Jesus, to get to his presence and stay there. Even if you feel like you're bringing your, your trauma, your emotions over and over again to him. In that place, Jesus is going to anoint you. You're going to go forth with a message about him and a message of power because you were the person that stayed. And this is what happens with Mary. She's the very first person commissioned to go forth. So you don't have to be a Bible teacher. You don't have to have any special, like, um, I don't know what the word is, like credentials to share the love of Jesus, the power and the message of Jesus. You just have to have an up close personal encounter with him. That's what qualifies us because we're not drawing people to ourselves. We don't have the power to save or change anyone. We're just saying, come and meet the person that I met who changed everything for me. So I love it. He commissions her. Um, He says, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. And this is what Heather was referring to. Once the covenant of Jesus's blood was fulfilled and his life was given on our behalf, our relationship with God changed. We were no longer friends of the Lord. Once Jesus gave his life in our place, we had the right to actually become sons and daughters, which made the disciples Jesus' brothers. This is the first time he's calling them his brothers. The nature of his relationship with them changed. They were like besties before, but post-resurrection, they're brothers which is why you and I have the right now to say, because we have given our lives to Jesus and we follow after him, we are now daughters of God. Okay, moving on. Um, Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that, and that he had said these things to her. So I'll now switch back over to the Luke version, verse 10, verse uh, chapter 24. Now these women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe the women. That's never happened in your life before, has it? Have you ever tried to share something with a man and they're like, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. I bet it wasn't exactly like you said it. Are you exaggerating? My husband has like a way he says my name. And when he says it, I can tell he thinks I'm exaggerating and like not really telling the truth of a story. He'll be like, Rebecca. And I'm like, that is what happened. And he's like, it's not exactly like that. And I'm like, they get the point of what I'm saying. Okay, so I think this is the the interaction that's going on between Mary and the disciples. They're like, she's like the emotional one. She used to have a lot of issues, but we know she's like made new in Christ, whatever. But she's kind of dramatic and tells stories and goes on and on. So like, we're gonna believe her, right? This unqualified, very emotional, clingy, touchy woman that doesn't fit in a lot of the boxes of this society is the first to share the news. And they're like, Okay, Mary, 
You know, they like just dismiss her. I just love it. It's like Jesus does not dismiss her. And anyway, let's keep going. That doesn't feel spiritual, but it is spiritual. Okay, so um, these words appeared to them as nonsense. Verse 11, they would not believe the women. Nevertheless, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. I love Peter because he's like, I'm going to see for myself. I'm not going to believe her, right? I'm going to see it. So he gets there. If you read the John account, John's like, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first, but Peter ran inside, okay? Because John always had some reservation that Peter didn't have. You know, John was like, is it okay if we go in? And Peter's like busting through the door without asking anyone's permission. Okay, he stoops, he looks in, he sees the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. He still didn't believe her. Isn't that amazing? He goes to the tomb. The grave clothes are there. There's no Jesus in them. And he's still like, huh, wonder what took place. Can y'all say, repeat this after me. It's a very spiritual word, hard-headed. Okay, hard-headed. Let's move on. Verse 13. Behold, on that very day, two of them, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus. The word Emmaus means hot springs. I love that it means that because do you remember when Jesus has this conversation with the woman at the well? And he says, he who drinks the water that I give them, it will become in them a well springing up to eternal life. And I love that the name of this very city they are headed to is Hot Springs. We'll get to the hot part in a minute. It was six stadia from Jerusalem. I think it means 600 feet you know, give or take a few. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. I love Jesus's like post-resurrection mode. He's just like appearing, you know, presume, you know, acting like he's just a part of the scenery, not revealing who he is. Like, it's kind of like he's in stealth mode post-resurrection. Y'all see that? He's just inserting himself into little moments and little conversations. No one even realizes it's him. He just shows up and starts talking and they're all, I guess this is a very like open society because they're like, hey, we've never met you, but cool, join our conversation while we're walking on this long trip because we don't have cars yet. You know, like this is all going on and it's like Jesus just inserts himself. They just bring him into the conversation. He says, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus approached to begin traveling with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? It says, they came, uh, they came to a stop looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you possibly the only living one near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened here in these days? Okay, like that was like not a very nice way of saying like, where have you been? Like, this is the biggest thing that has ever happened. Like, how are you around here and you do not know? And he said to them, what sort of things? Jesus just keeps asking questions like he's not aware of what's going on. And they said to him, those about Jesus the Nazarene who proved to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Remember, they were waiting for that military takeover. But he had a different plan. And they, um, indeed, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And some women among us left us bewildered. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and that he was alive. And so some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, I love this moment. You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. I'm telling you, that's the Bible study I want to be a part of where you're just taking a long walk and Jesus just shows up and he's like, okay, you have missed the main point. So let's start at Genesis, okay? And I'm gonna walk you through and show you how every one of these powerful stories you've known by heart because you did Sunday school growing up, these are all talking about me. Verse 28, they approached the village where they were going and he gave the impression he was going farther. And so they strongly urged him saying, stay with us for it's getting toward evening, the day is now 
now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them and it came about when he reclined at the table with them, which was his custom. He took the bread and blessed it. He broke it and began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Why do you think they recognized him when he broke the bread? Yeah, this had happened many, they had seen Jesus break bread many times before and bless it and then hand it to them. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's him. They said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Thus the hot springs, their hearts were on fire. They knew that he was explaining a truth they had never understood about who Jesus was. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the nighttime, middle of the night. They found the 11 gathered together and those with them saying, the Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road, how he was recognized by them at the breaking of bread. Okay, I just wanna ask you guys a question. And then we can be done. Jesus keeps meeting up with people who had placed their faith in him and revealing more about himself and then commissioning to go and declare who he was to other people. So here's my question. What has Jesus revealed about himself to you in these past four months? And who is he commissioning you to go tell? It could be somebody in your family. It could be a person you work with. It could be a person you haven't met yet. But with these thoughts in your mind, as you see them, you're going to have a thought. Maybe you see that they're in a place of need. And when you check on them, God's going to remind you to share some of the things he's been showing you. It says, now while they were telling these things, Jesus himself suddenly stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened. Why were they frightened? They thought they were looking at a ghost. I love the disciples because I resonate with them, right? He did not open the door to get in the room. Okay, so if anyone appears in a room you're in without going through the door, what's your reaction going to be? Right, they're freaked out. And so he says, why are you frightened? Why are doubts arising in your heart? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the John 20 version says, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be to you. When he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the father has sent me, I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the first moment the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of a human being. This is so powerful. I think we take it for granted because we know now when we give our lives to Jesus that he sends us the promise of his Holy Spirit to live on the inside of us, to start speaking with us, to start transforming our life into the image of Jesus. But this had never happened at this moment because a holy God cannot live inside of somebody who's unholy unless there is a covering where someone who, who also is holy has given their life in their place. And so this is the first moment the Holy Spirit's living on the inside of a human again since Adam, since before the fall. And he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all these things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the encouraged thing. When we study the Bible, who is it that helps us understand the things we don't understand? Is it our own intellect? No, the Holy Spirit himself will guide us into all truth. So even if you get discouraged read, reading the Bible, can I just encourage you stop and pray and stay at it because the Holy Spirit is dedicated to revealing Jesus to us in the scripture. 
says he opened their minds to understand the scripture and he said to them, so it is written, the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Did they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it happened the moment he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the promise there to wait on? Those who know, it happens in Acts chapter two, huh? Day of Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that will come. Uh, I think on day 50, it happens on Pentecost, which means 50, right? And this is right at day 40. So they have 10 days they have to wait before this promise is fulfilled. But once they are clothed with power from on high, then they go forth and are Jesus's witnesses. Why did he tell them to wait? So they did not go forth and start sharing the gospel in their own power. I was teaching on this this past week and I felt like God gave me the analogy. If you had to build something, would you rather use like hammer and nails, manual tools or power tools to do the job? I mean, I'd rather use a power tool, right? I don't know if you've ever tried to screw like a regular screw into wood. It's like the hardest thing. And the difference is a manual tool, you are the one supplying the power to get the job done. A power tool, there is a greater power source outside of you that is supplying the power. That is what I think happened when the Holy Spirit covered them, clothed them with power from on high. He made hard things easy. He gave them an anointing to go forth and do ministry in people's lives, just like Jesus did it. And not because they were eligible for it or they met all of these criteria and requirements, but the grace of Jesus fell on their lives. Jesus said, I've prayed that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to you. I've prayed that you will go forth and do greater things than I have done. So I just love that the last thing he leaves them with is a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. And I think that's all we have. Uh, do you want me to just read the last three verses? He led him out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God.